about to hear part two to this episode of climate mayhem if you haven't already go listen to part one to get the full story and that's another thing i was thinking about you know i was doing a little research on this as well thinking through that like it's not just going to the charging station it's we're used to going and filling up with gas which takes minutes right yeah. like and and if it's a big tank and you gotta sit there it's you know several minutes right but you're still not getting into that realm typically of a half an hour an hour right. more etc and 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 obviously with these at, at certain you know like you said certain kilowatts certain flow that come in how fast it's coming in and the way and how big my battery is right and then of course back to what you said jacob which is the battery fills at different rates at different points in the battery life I mean, we could be talking in, in the wrong wrong charging station a couple hours. One of the things that makes me think about is I almost want to be charging while I'm doing something else, like at a store where I'm going to go, like almost like a Costco, right, where I'm going to spend hours anyway, <laughs> go in there, charge my car. It almost feels like it's better fit in these kind of places of service where I have my habit is different, right? Like I think we, can, again, back to, we keep trying to fit it into the paradigm of gas stations. What else do you see the industry heading towards in that sense of? Yeah, that is a super good point. And I mean, what you're saying is is already reflected in the early stages of like where the first EV chargers are going, right? Because when you look, when you see EV chargers, like they're not at their own independent gas station like thing, right? right like, they're in the right. parking lots of grocery stores and strip malls and Ikeas and Costco's and, and, places like that. And that's where people are spending enough time to justify plugging in their car. So I, yeah. I do think that you have a very good point that we are trying to fit like a round peg in a square hole with like trying to sort of just, uh, I don't know that we're going to try to replace all right, existing right. gas stations with EV charging stations in the exact same spot. And that's going to be what it is. Maybe that will happen in some areas, certainly along like freeway corridor right, networks where right. people aren't really stopping and staying for longer than it takes to refuel. But yeah, I think hopefully as much as is possible, we would want to fit stations where people are already going about their daily business. And it's as low interruption as absolutely possible. So I mean, yeah. you want it to be a good experience for the consumer. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I was just kind of spitballing, but I appreciate you backing me up there. I mean, from you're 100% your, right. Yeah, yeah. You're, so from your data science role, are you getting a chance to look at these types of things? Like, you know, if we were to ask the question, where where are the most optimal spaces to, to put EV charges? You know, have you gotten a chance to model that out, look at any models like that and think about that? Actually, what I was hired for specifically is to work on that exact problem. So we have an algorithm that I spent a lot of hours looking at that nice. tries to estimate essentially like what charging would look like. I don't want to get too specific, but that, that's essentially what it does. And, you know, we take in information like what, what's around us, like is it a grocery store, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it's getting more sophisticated all the time, but that is at a high, very high level. Like that is something that certainly EVgo is, is doing. And I'm, I'm sure that many of EVgo's competitors are doing similar things. But yeah, there is a, it is an algorithmic problem with a, an algorithmic solution. Yeah. Uh, as well as, you know, a boots on the ground thing, because there's a lot of nuance to creating a station that is very difficult to encode. Like 
you have to run conduit from wherever the nearest like distribution or, or utility box is to get this amount of power to an actual like charging station, right? So you have to dig yeah. up a lot of concrete and a lot of asphalt and longer and run these huge copper wires underground. It's a lot of infrastructure for sure. But it's a combination. So they're not, it's not, they can't just plug into the grid at a convenient Exactly, yeah. Spot. You can't just like plug into a regular like, you know, three-prong outlet and like good to go. <laughs> you, you need a lot right, of right, kit right. to make that, that kind of work. Because if you did, you'd be capped to like, I don't even know. I, I'm just going to throw out an estimate. I think you're capped to like 10 or, or 12 kilowatts. So oh. that's pretty slow compared to like these 350s that we're seeing rolling out now. Right. And that's so why these it companies, works for these charging, companies right? are the ones doing this. Like exactly, these companies yeah. are are digging these trenches, laying exactly. wire themselves. Um, interesting, interesting. I didn't I didn't realize it was that involved. I thought there was grid access, and they were able to just you know post them up and obviously pay for that equipment. But um, that that is that is a big barrier to uh, to entry there. So I am curious. Do you guys have to think about like what affects EV charging at scale? Like if I think about putting an EV charger in Death Valley. Um, or the Mojave Desert, or, you know, at the top of Tahoe, you know, over the 80 um, in the snow. Does those things affect these chargers as we think of batteries and things like that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I wish I had a more definitive answer. As far as I know, temperature, humidity, precipitation, things like that don't dramatically impact the charging speed, as far as I know. And there, I mean, there are chargers, there are EV go stations on that highway 50 and highway 80 out to Lake Tahoe from Sacramento already. I don't know what speed they are, but probably. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just curious, as I was thinking through the infrastructure challenges you were, you were bringing up the other interesting thing that we kind of uncovered in the, in the research and, and, and this may be known or not, but Tesla talks about their charging stations as being a loss leader. They're actually not making money on these. My assumption is this is their walled garden that they've created. You know, I kind of imagine them as like the Apple of the car industry right now, where you got to use all their plugins and and their toys, but I can imagine a day when they don't, what what do they mean first off that this is a loss leader for them? And how does the rest of the industry think about this a little bit uh, when you have plenty? Yeah, totally. Very interesting question. Yeah. So Tesla makes pretty much all of their profit off of vehicle sales. Tesla has about a, 30, a low 30% profit margin on the cars that they sell, which is very high for an automobile manufacturer. Automobile, like Ford's yeah, right, is right, like, right. I don't know, 7%. Ford's is like 7%. Wow. Maybe, wow. maybe 12, but like it's in the it's in the single digits probably. So Tesla basically is like a wash on everything else they do. And this this is also publicly available information. Like you could look yeah, this up yeah, in their files. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, so Tesla's like net profitability is is really just driven off of their pay a right. bit less. But the the gap isn't like 10x or anything ridiculous like that. The gap is like, if I were gonna guess, the gap is like, you know, 30% or, or 20%, something like that. Like it is there is a price difference for sure, but it's not yeah. it's not like yeah. massive. It wouldn't like right. prohibit a Tesla driver from ever wanting to charge on a non-network charger. But they do have to bring an adapter with them if they want to charge on most non-Tesla chargers. They have to bring a Tesla to Chatamo like adapter that, you know, Tesla sells for however many hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. Uh, So it's a little bit inconvenient for them. But I think that I don't know how long that's going to live into the future. I think there's going to be more openness. You know, I hope. I, I'm yeah. a big fan of 
open source everything. So yeah, I think that's a value creation. I, I hope that Tesla eventually agrees and the whole industry can get along and, and coalesce around a single standard. It would make a lot of things easier and make the app experience easier and make the charging experience easier. Uh, it would also so, make automobile manufacturing easier because they would only ever have to worry about one standard. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I believe the EU has has basically um, regulated going to a standard plug or at least providing an adapter for one, right? Mm -hmm. The CCS, I believe, is the one they went with. Yeah, so that's the other popular one in the US. It's Stratamount CCS. Those are the two, two big yep. ones. But here you still got to split between the two and you got to have either an Pretty adapter. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. Well, then, what about the other? So you say default to open. I'm I'm with you there. I'm I'm Google versus you know I'm I'm Android versus iOS. Right. Huh? <laughs> but, you know, like I love that kind of idea, and that's how I think of these guys. But I've also heard because they have these margins and they've been able to go out and they're putting a lot of infrastructure. I mean, they have a lot of chargers out there. What if they went and turned those all to open tomorrow? How does that affect the industry? Yeah, I think it's something they're considering. Because Tesla is seeing this Biden money come out and they they want it as well, right? Like they're profit-maximizing sure. enterprise. Like they see money on the table. If they have a shot at getting it, you know, they're going to take a stab at it. And I think that there is a possibility that they begin opening up their network. It would require, if they were going to do it like, you know, quote unquote, the right way. And so that, you know, everybody could really charge their stations. It would require quite a bit of infrastructure tweaking. It's not just as easy as opening them up and saying, okay. It's not really as easy as flipping a switch, right? Because yeah. not every car can use that standard. Uh, yeah. Or everybody has to bring around, you know, like one of these freaking headphone dongles wherever they <laughs> right, go, but right. much more expensive yeah. and, and larger <laughs> bit of kit in their car to work with every yeah. other standard that exists. I'm I'm hoping Fair. that that's like a, a, you know, a vestigial organ of the, of the, you know, nascency yeah. of the industry. I think it'll be a funny thing to reflect back on in, in even like 20 years to be like, oh, remember when there were all these different plugs? There's now, just, of course, yeah. it's just standard plug. So why do you think they're doing it in the first place? If they call it a loss leader, why are they, is this just a value add for their customer? Like, what are they trying to do there? Because their customers have range anxiety as well. So if, if they're selling, I mean, they're selling a vehicle, but they're also selling, uh, I mean, what is still a fairly novel approach sure. to transportation and you know tesla to their credit was really the pioneer on the ev industry right like most of the cars in the united most evs in the united states are still teslas despite how many other entrants into the market there are so they they had to create a network to to even have a shot at selling these cars because otherwise like look at the toyota mirai that's an amazing vehicle, but it runs on hydrogen. How many hydrogen right. stations are there right. in, the, in the United States? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're both in California. So if you don't live in LA or, or, or San Francisco, like you're Two. never going to drive this car. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Super interesting. So Austin, another interesting fact that most probably don't know about EV industry, EV chargers, is that there's a little bit of this question of how much infrastructure do we build? ahead of the actual demand for the cars. This was 2020 numbers, but it said only 2% of vehicle purchases in 2020 were of EV vehicles. And so I think there's just a little bit of like this risk assessment that these companies are constantly going through. EVgo has, you know, really three different customers. I, at least that's what I found. It was, it was businesses, kind of like a, like a B2B play. Two was fleets and automakers, which you could say is two different categories in itself. 
And then number three was drivers, right? Being able to charge their car and, and pay for it. What have you learned about the consumer's appetite to spend money on this? Or at least what have you seen? You know, I think it's becoming more and more just, uh, you know, we've probably already seen the sort of wave of like early adopters, like I'm interested in the tech or I'm really passionate about driving a, you know, a, a zero, at least point source uh, emission vehicle. Because obviously electricity is still, you know, the United States is largely generated by burning natural gas or coal right. in some places. <laughs> Luckily, Washington State, very clean grid because everything is hydro. Hydro, yeah. 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 But yeah. So I think now we're sort of transitioning into the area, the decision that's best for them. And given that there are still federal tax subsidies for buying an EV and EVs are coming out cheaper and, and more plentiful every year, I think more and more people are deciding that they don't want to spend, you know, $7 a gallon on gas in LA when they <laughs> could charge at home. And they just yeah. want to go, you know, like 60 miles to and fro. They don't even care about the range that much because they're just buying a commuter car. So I think it is sort of transitioning into that that stage where it's just like now people are making the decision because it makes sense for them. It's no longer divided along like some sort of like technocrat elite really likes mm, having the newest yeah. thing. Like my very conservative uncle owns a Tesla and, you know, it's not for the money reason, but it's for the performance nice. reason. Like he likes having a car that has full torque at zero yeah. RPM. And there are consumers that are like that as well. Like. I think there's a little bit of something for everybody, except people who are going to miss that, uh, you know, internal combustion noise. Like, you know, I had a V8 Mustang when I was in high school and I loved yeah. that car. <laughs> EVs don't sound like that. Exactly. <laughs> they go yeah, so fast. I mean, all the fastest cars in the world now, if they're not pure EV, they're at least hybrids because like Interesting. they want that like extreme torque at yeah. zero, zero over time and over speed. And EVs don't have that problem. They have full go right from the start of the line yeah but it yeah. still can appeal to sure. the car enthusiasts they do go so fast so quick so it sounds like the it's consumer sorry. appetite is has high right. potential so how do you think of getting out of this early adopter phase I, ty brought that up with there's sometimes these technical errors that happen and someone has to like maybe go to a different charger like there's some patience that comes with that that's definitely an early adopter persona sort of a thing how is this going to get out of that what does that look like yeah, I I honestly think we're just about to see it like just happen organically because like you said right now like 1% ish of cars on the road are 1.9 and then for newly sold cars it's a bit higher than that still. So in in some markets in California we're seeing uh, I think by one report like 5% of the newly sold vehicles in uh, in 2022 in California were were EVs. So that that like 5% margin, I was reading an article the other day about how that was, uh, that's considered like a huge turning point yeah. for any industry. When you get 5% of, you know, the the market adopting that thing, then you're like, you're ready for the, wow. the steep part of the curve. Like 5% of people using an Apple iPhone, 50% was not far away from that on a time Interesting. horizon. Interesting. Uh hockey sticks from there huh? exactly and i mean california and washington uh bills about like sure. banning internal combustion engine sales after 2035 2035 is really not yeah. that far away that's less than 13 yeah. years or sorry uh yeah. yeah 13 years wow okay future's coming fast <laughs> there we go but i mean even by you know non-partisan estimates like like say you don't want to trust the biden administration that's fine by a, a meta-analysis of various like news outlets and, and industry experts 
approximately 50% of new vehicle sales are probably going to be EVs by the end of the decade. And wow. that's nationwide, wow. not just California, Washington, Oregon, or anything like wow. that. I mean, that's nationwide. So that's a lot of growth for the industry. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I, my best answer is I, I think it's happening. I think we're seeing it now. Yeah, we're about to go nice. into that early majority phase. That's pretty cool. How does an EV charging company balance making money and being good for the planet? How do, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm not sure what other companies are doing in that space, but I know EVgo only sells uh, net, like carbon neutral electricity. So if they were to purchase like a kilowatt hour of electricity in mm -hmm. like Mobile, Alabama, and sell it to you know a, a car who plugs in in Mobile, Alabama. I don't know what the grid is like there, but I would assume like it's it's still quite a bit of coal. Yeah, EVgo would have to pay for enough essentially carbon offsets to right. make that kilowatt hour uh, carbon neutral, as if it had been uh, okay originated from you know a wind farm or a solar farm or something like that. It's much cheaper for us to do that in Washington State where everything's hydro, but you yeah. know, <laughs> in the rest of the country, uh, we do quite a bit of purchasing of uh of you know low carbon fuel standard credits and just carbon offsets in general and that is also partially for a profitability reason like we are able to sell those we we get like public funding money for those credits and it, it is pretty substantial like it's not you know the majority of our revenue or anything like that but and I, i'm sure other companies are, are looking at the same that they're they're probably cashing in on maybe not to the same extent that EVgo is doing it but i think they're also cashing in on on tax subsidies for for carbon offsets like if we move to a world where let's say like the government just says like okay all pollution is going to be capped at this exact amount and then people are just going to have to trade credits to be able to have the right to pollute then these credits become even more and more valuable and it becomes even more and more profitable to sell a lot of electric energy versus a gallon of gasoline. So I think, I mean, I don't know, like I'm, I'm a pessimist. So I, I think that no, no company with investors, certainly no corporation is ever going to make a decision solely for the purpose of like, <laughs> like they have investors, they are legally obligated to act in the best interest of their investors. Absolutely. So yeah. I think this is this is as, about as much as we can expect from the industry. But I mean, at least in EVgo's uh, way, they are appealing to you know people appetite for having a truly like zero to low carbon uh, fuel source for their vehicle. I think that's great. Like whether they're making money off of it or not, I think yeah. that's uh, the direction that probably will take more of the United States towards a path of sustainability rather than, you know, relying on people's good graces to do it because I mean, people are horrible. <laughs> That's true. That's also the thesis of the, the show. I, the, Ty and I's belief yeah. is that for-profit companies have to get involved in this. We have to, if we're going to get to even marginally a good place, this, this is a must. Ty, were you going to say something? Just that. I mean, I think it's really awesome that you brought this up because this is, we're exploring this in a lot of different ways. And I think you bring up some really interesting points, but that is the reason why we are actually interviewing people who work with for-profit companies. I mean, although I would argue there's still some government subsidies behind a lot oh, of this, totally. right? Yeah. I mean, Tesla is propped up, but arguably other industries, oil and gas, as well as them, have been propped up um, for a long, long time. So this is not abnormal, but it is an interesting angle. And I like what you bring up about like 
maybe it's because people aren't so great and we want to make money. And that is an argument of capitalism and, and, and competition in this way, that this is where innovation comes from. This is where wealth is generated. This is where new ideas really try to take shape. But is that true? You know, is that the, is that the actual case? This one is actually about doing good and our grid is not perfect. Like you said, there's coal. So you need carbon offset offsets. Does that mean there's companies out there providing electricity, not maybe buying carbon offsets and just still just kind of, you know, taking care, taking advantage of a really crappy power grid system already? Or, you know, is it this is the only way by by having companies that make money in this, they'll come up with ways to do it better, cleaner for our future. I know, big question, but that's kind of. I mean, I, I think you are asking the exact right question. And your your point that you brought up at the beginning of that about how, like, I mean, it's not as if, you know, Chevron and Royal right. Shell and BP haven't benefited from huge government spending. We started literal wars right. for them. Every day. Yeah. We're not starting wars for EVgo and no. America, <laughs> as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the United States military is like, 40 some odd percent of our discretionary spending. So taxpayers are definitely propping up traditional, uh, you know, internal combustion engines as well. 100%. I think transportation is always something that's probably going to be at least a little bit taxpayer subsidized. Maybe, I, I mean, I would expect to see that that ramps down over time for EVs specifically. Like once they're on their own two feet, then it's just like self-sustaining profitability because, you know, mo- a lot of the infrastructure is already built. So now you're just like doing maintenance you're only replacing them when they wear out or, or updating them where they need to be updated. And, you know, hopefully electricity is relatively stable. Who knows what the future holds? But to your, your question about, like, is it is it really only going to be profit-driven versus, like, is there any sort of room for, you know, people to just do the right thing? Is that is that more or less yeah, the size yeah, of the Yeah, yeah, that's the great part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, my wife... And because we think it's the right thing to do, right? Like, because we we don't want to contribute that to climate yeah. change. And uh, yeah, and it originally started as a climate change thing. Like once I had the blinders down, I was able to see that I also cared about, you know, like factory farm animal rights and all that jazz. But it originally started as a climate change thing. Like it, it's so, it's so intense, like agriculturally energy intensive to uh, create a pound of meat versus like a pound of chickpeas or something. And, you know, we do that not for ourselves, right? Because we both love the taste of meat and we love cooking. We love seafood. And, you know, both of us love dairy, eggs, etc. the whole shebang. But we do it because we think it's the right. I think maybe it is a bit unfair of me to paint in such broad strokes and say that things are only going to happen when it's profitable to do so. And everybody's just this like, you know, what economists call an econ versus a human. Like everybody's just like a perfectly profit optimizing, like utility optimizing <laughs> automaton. Right, right. <laughs> So yeah, it's definitely a mix, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's definitely a mix. Hopefully we we see more and more people, you know, hopefully younger generations are are more environmentally minded than older generations and things get better slowly to whether or not it'll be fast enough. I'm I'm such a climate change like pessimist that I think the world is is headed for no good. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Regardless of what from a do. data scientist, he's looking at the data guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just from <laughs> no, a I'm just... <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. Well, you know, again, arguably 
we just created the richest man in the world with a whole lot of government subsidies right. uh, <laughs> and government prop, propped up. Maybe one last piece of this question then, you know, we've talked a little bit about how the EU has standardized on a plug. <laughs> we've talked about, you know, Biden just put in, you know, a whole bunch of money for infrastructure with carve out specifically aimed at electric uh, vehicles, electric charging, et cetera. We have car buying subsidies in this space already. Whether it's them getting out of the game or them getting into the game in a different way, what do you feel like needs to happen next for the government? Open this up and let more competition and more, you know, innovators in or help it more, you know, and go to go faster to get, you know, to get to this next place. What, what does the government need to change? What's the, what, what's the next regulatory shift we need? I think this is something that not a lot of people would think about, but I think one huge barrier that would make it a lot easier for fast charging uh, networks to proliferate and see like organic profitability is if there was some sort of top-down push for a more standard or more favorable uh, like surge pricing at the utility level whether that's only for EV charging stations or only for like, you know, green power, you know, whatever you want to call it, or if it's just across the board, I'm not sure. But there are some utilities where it's just so cost prohibitive to have a fast charging network, because as soon as you plug in a 350 pulling like Tesla Model S or whatever, even for 15 minutes, you now have a factor on your your pricing sheet for that entire month. That will make it so grossly unprofitable to have to have operated that station, even wow. even if you were only pulling that amount of power for like 15 minutes. Not all utilities are that bad, obviously, or else there would be no electric vehicle charging station networks. Yeah, but it is a problem that I I don't know how anybody would be aware of it unless they were already like in the industry to some extent. That this this surge pricing is so dramatic in some cases. So this is utilities actually already utilities, implemented. Yeah. They already have surge pricing implemented. Yeah, and exactly. It, and it makes it cost prohibitive to even touch that grid, touch that system with a charger. At least for that much power, right? Interesting. It makes sense from their perspective, right? Like if I'm if I'm PG&E, or it's it makes more sense on a smaller scale than that. If I'm a local like co-op right, utility, right. and I have a huge business that has very like sporadic power demands it's very expensive for me to be able to respond very quickly to their dramatic changes in power usage like if they turn on some massive machine and then just turn it off five minutes later that's a that's a lot of uh physical changes yeah. i have to make at the utility to generate that power because the grid it. has to be meeting power exactly to the kilowatt at all times interesting yeah, um, yeah. And the way that that works nowadays in like, at least in natural gasification plants and nuclear and anything that has a turbine is that you have literal tons of spinning steel blades. Wow. And that amount of kinetic energy is essentially what keeps a grid stable. And if I were to like plug in some massive machine or, you know, to a much smaller extent, a Tesla and pull 350 kW or like, you know, megawatt hours or megawatts off this thing, it's going to stop a lot of that momentum. And I have to immediately turn around and, and burn more fuel or do whatever I need to do to get those blades spinning fast enough, or I'll crash the entire world. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why they do it this way. But if there was some sort of got standardization it, to the pricing, 
maybe it's EV specific or not. That would be hugely helpful, I think, to um, all networks, Tesla, non-Tesla, all of them. Or, or even maybe just a, a, a max, yeah, right? Max. Like a limit at the top where like they couldn't, you know, maybe they even it out somewhere else in their, in their surging. Yeah, or a better way to amortize it, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But they can't go over a certain amount, allows companies to be able to come in and do it. That's super interesting. Great perspective. I had not even heard of this and super informative on how our grids have to kind of maintain stability. Hey, Jacob, I think it's I think it's time, man. I think we're going to take it home. Yeah, so awesome. We're, we're, we're going to do something before we, we end this chat, which is called Rapid Mayhem Questions. So we're going to ask you some challenging EV charger, EV vehicle industry, and uh, yeah, answer the best you can, and hopefully we can all learn some longer. Ready. Are you ready? All right. True or false? About 60% of consumers avoid EVs because they worry about running out of a I charge. I think that's true. But only, a but only a quarter of drivers actually hmm. have gone to zero. I would also think that's true. Yeah. You think that is true? Okay, so it's it's actually uh, the numbers are slightly different from AAA did this study. About fifty seven percent of consumers avoid EVs because they worry about running out of a charge. Only five percent of owners have run out. Only five percent. Wow. Okay. Well, kind of a trick question. That's kind of a trick question, Jacob. I don't. Know. We asked. We asked someone else. It would like be it. pretty like bad. <laughs> no, no, that's fair. That's fair. I should be more uh, more suspicious. Number two. These are all going to be true or false, but true or false, CO2 emissions per gallon of gas is 39 pounds. Whoa. How much does a gallon of gas weigh? Mm. About 60, right? I don't know. I don't know. Less. Way true less. True false. Hmm. That sounds high. I'm going to go false. I don't know, but I'm going to go false. That's right. You're right. It's actually 25 that's a pounds. Lot. That's a lot. Well, that's still a lot, though. Yep. And this is from... Drawdown, the book that did oh, the, yeah. the biggest study on the 100 uh, solutions to uh, draw down on oh, yeah. our carbon and, and uh, greenhouse emissions. All right, number three. Number three, true or false, there are over 1 billion cars on Earth with a third of oil consumption used to fuel gas-powered cars. Uh, I think that's true. I thought it was significantly more than a billion. It's actually more. It's two-thirds of the world's oil consumption is used wow. to fuel cars. This is 2017 work cited, so might be and how many cars are there actually is oh, it's it over? it's over a billion now so but they don't say exactly how many uh, this is also from drawdown so uh okay, I, sure. I haven't seen updated all right number four hybrid cars produce 90 percent fewer pollutants than a non-hybrid one co2 is different than you know nitrogen oxides etc i'll go with 90 percent uh, fewer i mean it's not like they're 90 percent more fuel efficient so i guess i'll go false because they can't be producing 90 percent fewer co2 it's it's a little borderline. So here it says that uh, it can produce ninety percent fewer pollutants than a, than a hybrid car, uh, and then says the environmental impact of electrical cars and hybrids is quite significant. In addition, a hybrid vehicle can save you to fifteen to twenty percent on fuel costs. So wait, you this is true. Say this the question true. again. Sorry, I know we already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hybrid cars can produce ninety percent fewer pollutants than a non-hybrid one. Me neither. Okay, Me interesting. Neither. I, I would not have guessed it true, but uh, that's uh, because no. I can link in the show notes. All right, last question. True or false? Pure electric cars, pure, don't need oil changes, transmission, or coolants, but they do need brake fluid replacement. Well, they pure definitely need brake fluid replacement. I mean, they don't need engine oil, right? Because they don't have an engine. But do they need transmission fluid? That was part of the first section, right? Mm. Yeah, that's included. I feel like... 
I've heard of uh, some EVs having two gears, which would imply that there's some sort of transmission going on. So I guess it's false on that. Yes, okay. you're right. It is false. The fact is that they, they don't need oil changes, transmission fluid, or brake fluid replacements. They don't need brake fluid replacement? How is that possible? This does depend on your category of EV. I Whoa. know there's three different categories. So if we're if we're if we were talking about a, a hybrid, then it does, no doubt. I I mean I, I have a hybrid. Yeah, but a true EV doesn't need brake fluid replacements. That's crazy. Yeah, I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Wow. Okay. More you know. <laughs> Rapid mayhem questions uh, deactivated. Uh, yeah. yeah great. How are you feeling? You feeling okay? Okay. Okay, good. All right, Austin. Oh, last, lastly, we like to end on some sort of call to action. Climate change is—it's huge. It feels so big. It's, some people call it a hyper object, right? People often feel helpless in, in being able to help. What do you think is the equivalent of what a listener can do? And maybe it's frame it in a fun way. Any busy soccer mom can do. Yeah, I mean, personal action that is completely unrelated to the EV industry. I think you avoid a huge amount of your carbon footprint if you just cut down on the number of uh, meals you eat per week with meat in them so if you're going to do like meatless mondays if that's your starting point that's that's totally cool go with that but if you know if you can do like only eat meat on the weekends or whatever or only eat meat when you go out to restaurants because you don't want to you know give up that experience Maybe try just moving in that direction because the the impact is is quite is quite large. Can you quantify that impact? Do you know of any facts to help people believe that more? Ooh, man, I I don't want to I don't want to say something that's factually incorrect. So sorry to leave another call to action sure. to the viewer, but you should you should really Google it because I think you'll be surprised. Sure. The, I think agriculture is the third largest contributor to greenhouse gases in the United States after. After transportation and energy production, I may be wrong about that, but it's yeah. it's certainly up there. And you know, meat obviously like has by far the highest uh, CO two footprint per per pound of uh, per pound of food or per calorie if you want to break it down that way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I can actually get that stat for us by the end of this end of this uh, end of this episode about what what percentage the total pie makes up or agriculture and what we eat. Well, Austin, any other calls to action for the audience before we go? One that I have a hard time with because I love travel. Jet fuel takes up a lot of uh, a lot of CO two. <laughs> it's a lot of CO two. There's big big carbon footprint when you when you fly. So if you can't avoid flying or like take more condensed vacations, and this is not a perfect solution, you know you could have more. You could fill a whole season just talking about carbon offset markets and and how you know fraught with various issues they are but it's better than not doing it so I, I, if you can't reduce your flying it's it's not as expensive as you might think it's the average consumer if them flying if they did one so across the ocean uh atlantic ocean wow. it's it accounts for some like 50 percent of their annual emissions yeah like, it's huge it's pretty big yeah. yeah and then finally uh this is from the book uh, how to avoid a climate crisis the bill gates book that he wrote it said 19 percent of emissions come from how we grow things so just like in the whole category of food and agriculture it was, it's about a, it's about a fifth yeah and then how we get around was 16 percent, so a little bit under a fifth say like a sixth right and then there's some other really big ones like how we make things really that's that has the biggest chunk that's 31 percent uh fascinating okay so it's manufacturing yeah and how we pl- how we plug in is the second biggest that's electricity you mentioned it's fueled by coal or just you know fossil fuels in general so yeah, interesting stuff. And then Austin, EVgo. So is there an app, website, 
any good blog articles? Yeah, I think our I think our website is pretty good, or EVGO's website. Um, if you just go to evgo.com, then you will be you you will be provided with uh, laden with information, useful information. But for most people, if they're actually going to use the network, they're probably just going to interact through mobile apps. So if you just go on your phone, Android or Apple store, you can Great. just type in evgo. It'll probably be the first thing that comes up. Okay, great. And if you have a hybrid car, mm-hmm. you use EVgo. So it's a plug-in hybrid. Let's pretend it's a, a plug-in hybrid. Wow, I I actually don't know the answer to that question because I think of hybrid or plug-in hybrids as the kind of people who would never charge on a on a public network because they, they might not need to. Will just use their right. gas engine. Yeah, they'll only plug in at home where it's very like it's just dirt cheap. All right, Austin. This was amazing. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I had a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me on, both of you. Well, I think we learned a ton. And uh, yeah, I, I love the way you bring a data science mindset to it, but also not. And you, you know, brought your own own views and and we really appreciate that. Thanks for uh thanks for joining us. Yeah, man. God, thank you so much. You guys have a great night. You too, man. You do the same. Take care. Bye. Take care, dude. Bye-bye. Boom. How was that? Well, there's more. So keep listening. We speak with climate tech leaders and change makers in EV, reforestation, solar energy, flood mapping, and a whole lot more. Also, you can give feedback or check out show notes at our website, climatemayhem.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Oh, don't forget, if you found this valuable or interesting at all, please hit subscribe. That way we know you're loving it. So just go to Spotify or whatever podcast app you're on, hit that subscribe button at the top. Production was done by Daniel Steenkamp with cover art by Harrison Glenn. This is Jacob Kabika with my legendary colleague, Ty Wolf motherfucking Jones. Peace out, Climate Mayhem. Out.